Welcome to the Amplifying Optimism in Education podcast, where we connect with educators from across the globe who are creating a better future for learning and educating now by implementing bold ideas and fostering a sense of curiosity, creativity, and possibility. Welcome to the Amplifying Optimism in Education podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Joshua Faden, here with my other co-host, Michael Carson. Hello, everyone. We are also joined today by Pamela Livingston Gaudet, author of Like No Other School Year. As you know, we've been doing a series with her on this incredible book that kind of gives foresight into um, how schools can, should, and are pivoting in the midst of COVID times, specifically looking at different issues uh, around technology and communication and online learning. Today, we're thrilled to have uh, Chapter 7 author, uh, Lindy Hockenberry. And um, she is going to be talking about her experiences, her work as an online um, learning specialist, and her job as an instructional technologist consulting for schools all over the world. So before we get to you, Lindy, Pamela, tell us just a little about where she fits in and why she's such a great person to have here on our show. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Lindy is a perfect person to have on our show. When I was interviewing everyone uh, for the book, it came out loud and clear that online learning professional development was seriously needed by schools, all the schools that I spoke with, that that was key. Uh, In many cases, the teachers had only taught in a brick and mortar school and had not been exposed to online learning. And I thought about who should write this chapter, someone who was a a real practitioner, someone who really was delivering professional development. And I thought immediately of Lindy. She has uh, delivered online uh, professional development to teachers in the U.S. and internationally. She also had written a, a an online book, uh, which we excerpted for the chapter. I would encourage everyone to go and get the full book, um, but Lindy was the perfect person. So I'd just like to ask Lindy if she could share her journey, her educational journey, uh, and tell us how you got to this place and what you're doing now, where you started from. Yeah, so I taught middle school and high school, 7 through 12, and by random life happenings, ended up doing some curriculum development, and as part of that curriculum development, we did professional development on our curriculum, so we would train teachers of how to use our curriculum, Um, and I should back up and say, too, my, I always had, like, a one-to-one, what's classified as a one-to-one environment nowadays. My classroom was, like, the computer lab for the entire small school that I taught in, so I was always lucky to kind of have this one-to-one environment in my classroom, so as we started to do the curriculum development, we started to integrate more technology into it, I kind of decided that that was really what I I enjoyed the most. So that led into working as a technology integration specialist for a regional education service agency. And then from there, I started doing um, instructional technology consulting full-time. So I've been doing that for about seven, six years, six or seven years now. Um, so yeah, like Pam said, I, I go all over the world, usually uh, working with teachers. My job is to really help them figure out how to integrate technology into their classrooms and instruction and curriculum and make sure that's purposeful. Since March, everything has pivoted just like everything else and everything has turned to online. So in April, while everybody was like baking bread, I didn't really know what to do with myself. And I just saw how much schools were struggling 
struggling and teachers were struggling with online learning. So I just started writing and I kept writing and writing and writing and pretty soon I had to stop. And um, that's kind of how uh, the essential components of an online course started, this like interactive notebook. Uh, and then that's how it got connected with Pam. And we expert exerted part of that for the Like No Other School Year book. So. Excellent. Thank you so much, Lindy. That's uh, I think it's always so interesting. We talked with Pam about the foresight to be able to make that pivot that you talked about, Aaron. It's like when you see something and you're like, well, I have this experience, I have this expertise, let me start writing, see where it goes. And it's like, oh, wait, people really need this. People are curious about this. So I'm curious if you could talk to us about when you were writing and what you were talking about, what is online learning and what does it mean in this day and age, especially in the midst of a pandemic? Yeah, one thing as I started to write I kept seeing all these terms out there like remote learning, virtual learning, uh, distance learning, and there was so much confusion. And I, I would see things where people would start to pick apart like, well, remote learning is this, but distance learning is this, but online learning is this. I'm like, wait, wait, wait a second. Like, no, it's all under the umbrella of online learning, right? So then I started to see a lot of confusion with blended and hybrid learning. So I kind of created what I call like the learning continuum where you have face-to-face -face learning on one end, right? That's where the teacher and the student are in the same room. Then you have online learning on the other end, the teacher and the student are never in the same physical space, right? So to me, that encompasses remote learning, distance learning, virtual learning, kind of all in, under this umbrella of online learning. And then the whole middle part of that learning continuum is blended learning, which is any mix of online and face-to-face -face instruction. Um, that also encompasses the term hybrid learning, which has really blown up in the year 2020. Uh, you hear so many schools right now that are doing hybrid models. Uh, that is a mix of online and in-person, right? So that kind of fits that, that middle part of the spectrum, like that blended or hybrid learning models. So with the hybrid learning model, I think that there's this sense of it's uh, some chemist in some lab somewhere is mixing up the perfect percentages and concocting what it needs to look like. Is there truth to that? Or what is the actual way that we go about figuring out how blended learning can work? Or should it even be something that we're trying to work towards? Yeah, that's the tricky part about blended learning. Since it encompasses that entire middle part of the learning continuum or that spectrum of face-to-face -face and online, that's a lot, right? That's a huge spectrum um, of different combinations or blends, hence where the word blended learning comes from, that you can come up with. So one thing I've been trying to stress to schools and teachers is there really is no right or wrong way to do blended learning or hybrid learning. You kind of have to figure out what works for you. So what's happening a lot, our local school district is doing this where, you know, half the students come Monday, Tuesday, the other half come Wednesday, Thursday, and on the opposite days, they're learning online. Blended model if you want to call it a hybrid model, right? Um, so really, like, and a lot of schools, it, one important thing to understand, so when you look at blended model or blended learning research, there's seven different blended learning models, and that really helps you make sense of that huge part of that spectrum, right, are those blended learning models. A lot of schools and a lot of teachers even use different pieces or different models. So it's like a blended, blended model. So that's where it starts to get really, really confusing. Uh, I always say like blended learning is a lot more blurry, right, than online learning. Online, it's pretty clear. You know, you're doing everything remote. 
you're never in the same physical space, but blended and hybrid is a lot more fuzzy, a lot harder to define and say, do this, because there really is no right or wrong way. I know, Lindy, that you've mentioned that what was happening during this time when schools were closed, uh, physically closed, the, the brick and mortar schools were closed, but education was continuing, that this was not a good example of online learning. So I was wondering if you could tell us about that, about what teachers went through during that time when physical schools were closed, what they needed from you, and now what do teachers need from you now from professional development? Yeah, so that's one thing I always start any training I do now on online or blended or hybrid learning with a kind of what I call like a pep talk. And the pep talk is, okay, here's what you need to understand. You did not experience online learning in March and April and May and June of 2020. You experienced crisis learning. And to be more specific, remote crisis learning, right? Or you could call it virtual crisis learning. Uh, so there's a big difference. So I feel like what happened in the spring of 2020 for Northern Hemisphere people uh, is we got a, a bad name or online learning got a bad rep, <laughs> right? So now everybody's like, nope, we don't like that. It was awful. We don't want to go back. No matter what, we don't want to go back to that. So that's an important distinction is you didn't experience true online learning. You experienced crisis learning. There was no, you know, it was brought on with the flip of a coin, right? Nobody knew it was going to happen. School shut down overnight. There was no planning. The teachers didn't have any time to think about how to properly introduce students to online learning and kind of that scaffolding process that happens. Not to mention that the majority of teachers that had to make that shift probably have never taught online in their life, nor were they taught to teach online. So that's hard. So that's something that I've really been trying to stress to schools is like, nope, wasn't online learning, start fresh, get that idea out of your mind and kind of come into this with a fresh perspective. I, I know that you talked about what teachers need and what they've experienced and the difference between what you were going through in the spring versus what you're trying to get to ultimately when you are doing online learning. I'm curious, I think a lot of teachers try to figure out how do I retrofit what I did in the classroom and just bring it online? Is that what we should be thinking about as teachers and, and in the schools or where should we be thinking about the curriculum that needs to be taking place and the teaching that needs to happen online? Yeah, that's, that's really important to understand. Um, going from one end of the learning continuum to the other is not like doing like a file save as and saying, okay, I want to save this as a PDF now instead of a Word file, right, or Google Doc. Like, it doesn't work that way. There's no magical flip switch that you can flip that says, all right, now we're going to go take my course from face-to-face -to, -face to online, and it's going to be like a simple conversion. Um, there are parts and pieces of what you do in face-to-face -face that you can do online with maybe some small tweaks, but overall, you need to think of it as a completely different course. So I've heard a lot from teachers of like, this is like my first year of teaching all over again, right? It's so much work. I'm having to create everything. And it is, and I won't lie. It's, it's not easy to take your course that's been face-to-face -face and all of a sudden just make it online overnight. It's not easy at all. Um, is it possible? Absolutely. <laughs> but it's not easy. And it will be time-consuming because you are going to have to 
think differently about so many pieces of that course. One of the things I try to stress with teachers is online learning is less forgiving than face-to-face learning. And that is a biggie that you have to really think about and go, oh yeah, you're right. It is less forgiving. And I always use the example of if I'm in a face-to-face environment and I give my students an assignment and I say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And everybody starts doing that assignment. And then all of a sudden hands start to go up. Well, I don't understand this question or what am I supposed to do here? You can say, okay, stop everybody. This is what's going on. Let me explain this part or let's change this or maybe let's just strike that question out and not do it, right? You can get everybody on the same track moving forward, assuming that they're doing, they're working at the same pace, right? On the same learning goals. Uh, But with online learning, you can't do that, especially with asynchronous online learning, right? Maybe if you're in a synchronous online session, you could try to kind of pivot and fix that situation. So, The other thing that's really important to understand is that you cannot make the focus of your online course synchronous, especially in a K-12 environment. And the reason being is it gets down to why, like how our brains and our eyes react to staring at a screen all day. Uh, Literally, it is more fatiguing to stare at a screen than it is to be in the room, a physical room with people interacting. Like even right now, we're all, all on a Zoom call. This would this is more fatiguing than if we, the four of us were in a room together. Um, it has to do with the way our eyes react to the screen. Um, it has to even do with the fact that you you're seeing yourself. And you know, you don't see yourself when you're in a physical room with people. <laughs> So you feel like you have to constantly make like adjustments to the way you're standing and looking and, oh, I'm slouching and I need to stand up and, oh, my hair's in my face. I need to brush it away. So all of that. And then let's take a middle schooler who's already, you know, in that period of feeling awkward about themselves potentially. And that's just amplified. So you cannot expect students to spend all day in synchronous online learning like this, right? Where you're in the same virtual space at the same time. You have to do asynchronous online learning and it's less forgiving. So you have to be more strategic Mm. about asynchronous online learning. And you have to be really strategic about the planning of that, right? Um, To make sure it goes well. One other thing I'll say is, you know, so I always say to teachers, like, you can't do more than an hour of synchronous online learning time a day especially in the K-12 space because of that fatiguing factor. So you have to be strategic about making sure that you're using that hour to the maximum ability that you possibly can and then doing everything else asynchronously. That's the trick right there. Mm. And even just from a 10,000 foot view real quick, you know, it, it, it kind of surprised me and then it didn't. Like if you could just from that high level view, like what's the map to asynchronous learning and what's the map to synchronous learning? What do those things really mean for teachers? Because I think a lot of teachers, you know, that wasn't, maybe that was a multiple choice question on a test in college, the difference between synchronous and asynchronous. And how do you kind of frame that for teachers to really start to realize, oh, I'm actually just charting a different course. These are very different things. What do they mean? Yeah, so synchronous just means you're learning in real time. So right now we're doing synchronous. We're learning in, we're all together in the same virtual space at the same time, right? Asynchronous means we're all kind of working on our own time. So you might assign an assignment and maybe one of your students is doing that assignment on Monday afternoon. Another is doing it on Tuesday night because they have to watch their younger siblings during the day. 
Maybe another does it on um, Wednesday over their lunch break. Maybe they have to work, right? So that's asynchronous learning. Like everybody's kind of working at their own pace. Now, one thing that I had to really specify to teachers at the beginning of all of this is asynchronous does not mean that you can't set deadlines or structure to your course, um, right? Like it doesn't mean that you have to have everybody doing a personalized learning environment. Of course, that's awesome and amazing, um, but it's not what a lot of our schools follow, right? Just That's just a, a fact. Uh, so you can still provide structure. You can still provide due dates. I really try to stress with asynchronous, do not follow a day-to-day schedule. And that is really hard for a K-12 teacher that, you know, I always think back to my lesson planner. You know, you open up your lesson planner and it's got five blocks, one for every day of the week. So you're supposed to plan, what am I going to do every day of the week? And then you have to make a photocopy of that and give it to your principal, right? So we've been trained to think that way as teachers, as face-to-face teachers, I should say. Now, when you move to the other side of that continuum, you can't think day-to-day anymore. You can't say, okay, students, you have to do this on Monday and you have to turn this in on Monday. The reason being, A, it'll drive you crazy because you're going to be doing so much work trying to keep keep students busy, right, quote, on every day of the week. Um, B, it doesn't work well for students that are learning online that now need to have a flexible schedule. I was just talking to one of my good friends who's an educator yesterday, and her kids are in virtual school right now, um, and the youngest is in kindergarten, and she said that the teachers wanting them to turn in their things every day. So like, here's what you do Monday and you turn it in Monday and here's what you do Tuesday and you turn it in Tuesday. And she's like, it is a nightmare trying to get a kindergartner at home with so many distractions to say like, do this right here, right now, right? (laughs) And turn it in like you have to have this done of money. So you can't do that anymore. What you can do is I highly recommend if you are a K-12 teacher that's in a typical, usually Monday through Friday schedule is lump everything by week, right? So instead of thinking day-to-day, you're thinking by the week and you're lumping the topics by week and you're lumping assignments by week. Now, you can still provide a pacing guide and I highly recommend that. That's a strategy that is like the number one thing that you have to do to make asynchronous learning successful for K-12 students is give them pacing guides. So you can say, if you wanna be done by the end of the week and be on course to get everything done that you need to get done this week, you should have this done by Tuesday, this done by Wednesday, this done by Thursday, right? So you're giving them a suggested pacing guide, but you're not saying like, this has to be done Monday and this has to be done Tuesday and going by a day-to-day schedule. I I think it's great that you're talking about schedule because that was one of the things that came out of the uh, interviews I did with the educators. Uh, A lot of them at first uh, actually tried to replicate the school day and literally have Zoom sessions from 8 o'clock in the morning until 3.30, you know, with half an hour for lunch. It was just nuts. And then they went to plan B and plan C and moved on to that because it just doesn't work. Are there any examples of schools or or even classrooms that are doing it well that that you have encountered and what elements did you have? You mentioned the pacing guide and some other things. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways that you can do it, but like lumping by week, uh, letting students work at their own pace, like truly asynchronously, right, is huge. Not having, like I said, more than an hour of synchronous time a day. 
Um, the reason being, if you take a typical school day, say it's eight to three, and you were to write down every minute that a student spends, so many of those minutes are spent transferring classes, recess, lunch, talking to their friends in the hallway, right? Like you take what's a six hour school day and the actual instructional time goes. So you cannot, and this is one thing that teacher schools have to understand. But what I found too is you have to educate parents on this, that you as a school and as a teacher cannot keep their kid busy for six hours a day like they would if they were leaving the house and going to a school building. You just absolutely cannot because of that, right? Because of all those little things. Um, so educating parents is a good, is a really important for schools that I found that have been successful with virtual learning. And that's hard. I know it's not an easy one for parents that work full time. It's hard, um, right? Because you're used to your kid being off in another adult supervision for six, seven hours a day. And now you're having to figure out how to balance that. Uh, I was just talking to my friend yesterday. She also has a fourth or fifth grader. And she said, she's done by nine o'clock every day because she's quick. So, and she's figured out if she gets this done, she has the whole day, rest of the day to herself. So for her, it's going super well. And she's like, I don't know if we're going to get, get be able to get her to go back to face-to-face right? Because now she's spending her day on things that she enjoys, making Minecraft videos on her YouTube channel, uh, doing coding lessons, right? <laughs> on things that, that interest and enjoy her. So she plows through her schoolwork, gets it done because she can, and she has the ability to do so, and then spends the rest of the day on her own. Um, that actually leads to another important topic when you ask, like, what are schools that are doing it well? Schools that are doing it well understand that seat time does not equate to learning. And that is something that you really, I was just writing about that the other day, you really have to think about, but what does seat time get you? Attendance, that's what seat time gets you. It does not, seat time does not equate to learning in any way, shape or form. Maybe you could do a, a say you have a hour synchronous call and you do a pre-assessment and a post-assessment. You could measure and see if learning happened, but by simply being in a physical or virtual space does not equate to any type of learning. There's no way that you can make a relationship between those two things. So schools really have to think differently that are doing online learning, full online learning right now, and realize that things like requiring students to show up to synchronous online time, uh, turning their, requiring them to turn their webcams on during that time are basically what they're doing is they're causing themselves more headache than they need. And that's the, the farthest thing that schools need right now and teachers need right now is more headache, right? <laughs> like don't bother with things that don't matter like attendance. Um, so one thing I tell, I say to these schools and the schools that are doing successful do this and this will kind of make you go, you're gonna be like, wow, this lady is crazy and what? Is your synchronous online time should be optional. You should not require kids as part of their grade that they show up to synchronous online time. If that kid is doing their assignments, doing their learning tasks, right, and showing that they're learning the concepts, why would you deduct their grade based upon attendance? And I know that gets down to some, you know, school policies, state policies, your Department of Education and all of that. So that's part of this whole thing, too, is getting those agencies to realize that and think a little bit differently on how they measure 
um, school success, teacher success, student success. One of the things that we need to know as educators, and all of us are educators, uh, is that relationships matter in teaching and learning. And uh, certainly there's a lot of research on this. And I think that teachers have worked hard for the most part to build relationships when they're face-to-face with students. But I think building those relationships are harder online. Do you have any advice about that? Yeah. Um, I would say this has been a biggie from teachers, um, building those relationships, developing a sense of community and a culture of learning is essential to any learning environment, but it's absolutely vital to the success of online learning in the K-12 space. Vital. You have to do it. So it's so important. I, teachers will say, well, how do, I develop, how do I develop relationships when they won't turn on their camera? Okay. It, it's different, right? That's the key. Remember how you have to be more strategic about it. So developing relationships in an online environment is different than developing relationships in a face-to-face environment. It doesn't come naturally in an online environment and especially in an asynchronous online environment. So you have to be super strategic about it and it has to be ongoing. It can't be a one-off. Like you can't just do um, a quick little activity at the beginning of the class about learning about your students and then say, I'm done, right? I've developed those relationships and never do it again. You have to constantly do it like every day, every week, depending upon exactly what your online course looks like. Um, So I, some of the suggestions I have for teachers is uh, embed sharing activities. Because you have to remember that these kids no longer have hallways and lunchrooms, and they're not sitting beside each other in a physical space where they can chat. And you can't have side conversations in a video call, right? (laughs) You can do that in a physical space, but you can't do that in a video call. So you have to, as a teacher, kind of provide that opportunity by providing sharing prompts. So I like the one, um, describe your favorite or uh, describe your personality as an ice cream flavor and why, you know, things like that. Uh, Or even I'll just do fun things like uh, I always try to take content like food themes and things that are like contentious around food, like pineapple on pizza or um, pistachio ice cream, yes or no. Those are good because they're yes or no questions, so they're easy to answer, uh, right? With adults, by the way, are the same way. I've started to move more towards yes or no questions with adults in online learning because they're the same as students. They don't, they'll answer a yes, no question, right? So things like that as a way to get to learn them, uh, get to know them and it sparks conversations. Another thing that's important is you need to get to know your students they also get to, need to get to know you, right? They need to know that you're a person, that you're a human being, right? You're not just this thing on the other side of the screen uh, that they, so that's super important. So some things I try to do is uh, just share things about my life. So like I have dogs, so I share little stories about and pictures about my dogs. Maybe you have a hobby that you do that you can share things about, right? Just things to spark conversations, like informal relationship building, community uh, building types of conversations. I could go on and on and on about different things, but those are examples of how you have to be strategic and you have to embed those into your course. Yeah. What I kind of hear you saying there too, is simply that there's, there's so much that was happening in a physical school building that cultivated relationships with cult, which cultivates and supports learning that were invisible in the sense that no one had to talk about them. They just happened. 
They just happen naturally, right? And they don't happen naturally online. So you have to be strategic about it, right? You have to think about how to embed those things that don't naturally happen online, but are so important to the learning process, like building relationships. And as a teacher, you know, if I'm putting myself in the seat of a teacher who has generally avoided their computer for their career, how do they, like, what are the first couple things they might start to explore in order to cultivate that? Because I think people very quickly, as you explain that, you explain it so well, like, I think people get the importance, but like, how do you, how do you start there without it being like, oh my gosh, I think I need to find a new career. <laughs> that's, that's tricky. Um, Cause you're, you're basically learning a whole new set of skills, right? Again, it's like your first year of teaching all over again. So I always say you have to have a course home base. So I think we talk about this in our chapter in, in Pamela's book, like their course home base is that place that students go to access everything for the course, right? Their assignments, their due dates, any communications that you're sharing with them. So you have to have that. That's like step number one. Then in terms of like embedding those relationships, step number two is just, you don't have to use another tool. Almost every course home base tool, Google Classroom, Microsoft Teams, Seesaw, Canvas, Schoology has some type of like announcement feature or discussion feature. So just start embedding those types of questions there. And all you have to do as a teacher is post the question and then watch the students respond and maybe respond to them every now and again. Like, oh, you enjoy this. I enjoy that too. Oh, you have a dog. I have a dog too, right? You know, things like that and make connections with them. Like that's not hard to do. That's not a huge um, technology barrier, right? That's just one little simple step that you can do. You don't have to. Another thing I try to stress to teachers that are newer to technology is you don't have to have 50 different digital tools to be an effective online teacher. Um, I kind of have like my essential digital tools and it's like five, six, seven of them, right? And the way that I pick those essential tools is the tools that give me the most bang for my buck. So like you have to have a screencasting video tool. So I use Screencastify. There's Loom and Screencast-O-Matic out there. I even tell teachers if, if you feel like you can't, like you're at your max of learning capacity and you can't learn one more tool, well, you have to have been using either some sort of video conferencing tool, right? Google Meet. We're on Zoom right now, Teams meetings. Go into that tool, whatever it is, by yourself. So just start a meeting. Don't invite anybody. Hit record. Hit share screen. You have a screencasting video, right? It's going to save that video and you can post it just like you're saving the recordings of your synchronous online sessions. So screencasting tools, um, I'm a huge fan of Flipgrid because you can do a million different things with it. Um, a form type tool, so either Google Forms or Microsoft Forms and a slide tool. So Google Slides, PowerPoint, because you can do a million things with that as well. Um, those are kind of like my essential tools that get me a ton of bang for my buck and I can do a lot of different things with. Once you feel like you've kind of mastered those, then you could start to kind of trickle out. Maybe you want to look at Edpuzzle or Padlet. Those are kind of my next in line tools that give me a lot of bang for my buck in online learning. I, I think that that's really uh, wonderful to have those tools, as you're saying, and to know that you can really simplify your toolbox, so to speak, right? That you don't need to think about, oh, are, 
our district has bought 50, 100, 7,000 different apps that I need to learn these all if I'm going to be effective, that you can just use the basics and be very effective. And I think in terms of like the curriculum too, how you make it engaging and exciting for the students comes back to, you know, when you were talking about your friend whose daughter tries to get everything done by nine o'clock so she can go do, as you said, things that she enjoys, right? It's like, how can we incorporate things that our students enjoy into the curriculum so that they're not wanting to be done by nine o'clock or they're done by nine o'clock and expanding on what they've learned to have fun with it even further. So what are the, what tricks have you noticed that have been working well to really allow students to use that asynchronous time to their advantage so that they want to be having fun with it on a more regular basis? Yeah, great question. Honestly, that's one of the keys to successful online learning is to find those things that motivate your students so that they want to learn. Because another big kind of key takeaway I tell teachers about online learning is you cannot stand over their shoulder and force them to do anything anymore. So they have to have some sort of motivation, whether it's extrinsic or intrinsic. So to really get to that intrinsic motivation, you have to give them choices. I'm a big fan of Genius Hour. So what Genius Hour is, is like come back to that like 20% time uh, where people, so Google employees, um, 3M employees are allowed to use 20% of their time as an employee for something that interests them. And um, interestingly enough, a lot of Google tools have been built. Gmail was built off of that 20% time. Uh, So that Genius Hour takes that idea of 20% time and applies it to education and to a learning setting. So students are able to pick a topic that interests them. Uh, There's lots of tools out there that you can kind of help them generate ideas. Wonderopolis is a great website for the the littler kids uh, to help them find things that they wonder about, right? And then they kind of build a project off of that. So they learn about a topic that they've chosen that they want to learn more about. And they go. So there is a whole website on Genius Hour. Let me look. Let me look it up real quick. Genius. I think it's just GeniusHour.com. Genius. Yeah, GeniusHour.com has tons of resources for this. Genius Hour is a little bit more of a larger project. I was really trying to encourage teachers to do Genius Hour projects in the spring. Um, like this is the best time ever to do a Genius Hour project because time is no longer a constraint. It doesn't matter if one kid spends an hour on it and another kid spends 20 hours on it, right? If Genius Hour seems like, wow, that seems like a lot, a little overwhelming, um, there are also projects called like a Wonder Day or I turn it into a Wonder Week project for online learning where it's a smaller scale. Students pick a topic and they just start to explore that topic. So it's a smaller scale than a Genius Hour. Um, So those are kind of, or any type of like inquiry-based project, honestly, to be example, or to be, you know, given examples, like you have students take something that interests them and then let them take off with it and do the research and then come back and tell you what they've learned about it in some way. I'm wondering, Lindy, uh, that I know you do a lot of professional development and during the time, uh, you know, March, April, May, June, I think maybe teachers were concerned about the tools more and maybe my assumption is off. Is that true? And are teachers moving more to actual pedagogy and how to use the tools and examples for engaging students or is that, are they still on the uh, learning of the tool? You know, I think that completely depends on the teacher and the school um, and what training that teacher has. Um, 
there's teachers that are going to take and they're going to run with it, you know, and figure it all out on their own. There's other teachers that are going to need a lot more support and are going to be more dependent on support provided by their school, which is so important that schools do provide that option for their teachers. Um, so honestly, I think it just depends on the school, the individual teacher, on kind of where they are. I see it across the board. Um, I see teachers that are rocking online learning and doing amazing things and really moving into like developing relationships and creating self-directed learners and using the technology to leverage really great learning opportunities. And then I see teachers that still don't know how to share their screen on a video call. So <laughs> the gamut is as far as you could possibly go in terms of um, the skills in either way. So that means from a school, if you're a school leader listening to this, you have to provide training across that full gamut, right? Because it's not fair to your teachers that already know these things and are taking and running with it to have to sit in a PD that's showing them how to share their screen on a video call. And it's also not fair to those teachers that are at that other end to have to sit in a session that's, you know, going to basically go over their head and overwhelm them. If you were to start thinking into the future and, you know, looking ahead at six, 12, a year and a half, whatever we're talking after post-pandemic world, how do we take what we're learning now, kind of, you know, it's all been thrown at us and we've kind of been forced to learn this, forced to adapt, you know, for, for, for better or worse, but how do we turn it into the better and really use these skills longer term so that if and when we do try to make these returns to, quote unquote, a normal school building and setting, that we still see what worked and what worked well and try to actually continue to integrate that? Or do we just say, great, we're back in person. That was a fun experiment. Let's move on. I I get asked this question a lot. I've pondered this question a lot. My husband is tired of me talking to him about this question because <laughs> this has been a major concern of mine since the very beginning, like right when school started to shut down. Like I hope that schools use this time as a learning opportunity and they don't just go back to the everyday norm of how it was done pre-COVID. Um, some things that I try to assure teachers of right now is when you look at that learning continuum, remember the whole middle part of it is blended learning, a mix of face-to-face -face and online. And the focus of face-to-face -face versus online time depends on what model you're using, right? Where you fall in that curriculum. Some blended learning models have more emphasis on face-to-face -face time. Some have more emphasis on online time or online learning time, I should say. The important thing to remember there is the online component. So all blended models have an online component. So everything that you're doing right now in your online course can take and be applied to a blended learning model, to that online component, right? The benefit of a blended model, though, is that you have the added benefit of face-to-face -face time. Um, depending upon the model, for example, one blended model is the enriched virtual model. It says that the focus is on online learning. Face-to-face -face time is viewed as supplemental to supplement that online learning time, right? You go from that all the way down to like a station rotation model, which just says that students are rotating through stations. Almost every elementary teacher, by the way, in the world does a station rotation model, and they might not even know that they're doing blended learning. It just says that at least one of those stations is an online component, right? The benefit of the a blended model is that it provides the opportunity for students to, to have more of a differentiated 
individualized or personalized learning environment. So I hope what schools do and what teachers do, even if your school isn't doing this, by the way, and isn't leading this charge, you as a teacher um, can do blended learning in just your classroom. <laughs> you can. So I encourage you, if you're a teacher, that your school maybe isn't moving in this way, try to do it just in your classroom because what it allows you to do, blended learning, is allow your students to, um, like I said, either you can either differentiate, you can make more of an individualized learning path for your students, or the whole gamut is a personalized learning path, right? Where you're personalizing every single element of the learning experience. So I really, really, really hope that schools and teachers uh, realize that, that they don't need like the time, what they're doing right now is not wasted time at all, actually. So almost everything that they're doing now, if they're in a full online environment can be applied to a blended environment post COVID or during COVID if you get to that point. I think another thing that I'm thinking about as you talk about the online components and you talk about this a little bit in the book as well are some of the equity issues, right? Around if all these require an online component, how do we ensure that every student has access to devices, has access to internet, has access to the curriculum, the materials, the apps? And then the other side of that too is how do we deal with students who um, have the access but have an IEP that might require extended learning time when they're required to hand things in though at certain time periods as you talked about, you might want to guide them, but as well as just thinking about some of the executive function that is involved with having to schedule yourself in some of these blended learning models. And so I'm curious if you could just kind of speak to some of those issues as well. Yeah, let me start with the, the second part first. Um, one amazing thing about blended learning is that it opens up the teacher's time to spend more one-on-one -on -one time with students because your students, instead of you guiding, say, a lesson, more of a direct instruction lesson, your students are doing that online component, right? They're just maybe doing it in a physical classroom. Um, so this is where the synchronous, asynchronous gets really crazy because you can say, okay, well, the, the students are doing asynchronous work synchronously, <laughs> but kind of not really. It gets a, gets a little weird as you start to think about it that way. But, you know, all the things, if you're building self-paced lessons or asynchronous lessons right now, do that in your, if you go back face-to-face, -face, right? Then your students have everything they need to work on that. You can walk around the room, check in with every learner, help them move. If you have a student that has an IEP, you can pull them aside for a one-on-one -on -one conference and work through the things that they personally need, right? That individualized or personalized instruction. Um, so that I think hopefully answers that part of the question in terms of the equity in terms of access. So when we're talking about equity for access to technology, access to internet, access to devices, there are good things coming out of COVID-19. And one of them is that it's shining a major light on equity issues that have been there forever. <laughs> and I'm hoping that our leaders in education see that. And um, it's honestly, I think it's gonna take um, our legislators, our, our people that represent us at the political level to pass bills that say, like we have to have broadband internet access for all. 
Like that's just the way it is. I live in Montana, very, very rural state. A problem that a lot of schools had in the spring was so many of their their kids don't even have internet because they live out on ranches and farms. Like they literally don't even have the option to have internet, right? So our um, local, not local center, state senator uh, just announced yesterday that they're investing like, I don't remember, a lot of money into broadband access across the state. So that's what it's going to take. It's going to take us thinking in terms of a sense of community and the bigger picture and not just our individual selves to make sure that things like everybody has internet access gets out there. And schools are going to have to work harder at making sure that they have a one-to-one environment and they can send home a device to every single kid. That's so important. I know we're coming up to our time here and it's just been such a joy. I think we could just listen to your enthusiasm around how to make this a reality and make this work for all students indefinitely. It's just been a real joy. Um, So I do want to just say, Lindy, this has been such a pleasure and I, I thank you so much for taking the time, being a part of this and sharing your brilliant insights, your amazing work that you do with teachers, with students, with parents, and making sure that everybody understands, you know, as you said, that from, from definitions of what we're talking about, the semantics of it, to the actual implementation of it, and how to make it work for everybody. So thank you so much, Lindy, for, for being a part of this and for sharing you and your knowledge with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I definitely don't have a lack of um, information to share on the topic, as you can tell. Yes, yes. So how do people how do people get more Lindy then in their life? How do they get more of that information knowledge? How can they get in touch with you and keep this conversation going? Yeah, sure. They can email me. Um, so it's Lindy L I N D Y at Integrated PD is my uh, business. So I N T E C H G R A T E D dot org. You can also go to my website, integratedpd.org. You can contact me through there. Um, I'm also on Twitter, Lindy Hockenberry. I'm at Lindy Hockenberry. So that's L-I-N-D-Y. Hockenberry is a tricky one. H-O-C-K-E-N-B-A-R-Y. <laughs> Not Excellent. like the berry berry, B-A-R-Y. So yeah, connect with me on Twitter. Um, I've been so busy. I have not been good about my social media, but I'm trying to get in there and post more little like tips and tricks and strategies about online and blended learning on my, my Twitter. So yeah, I'd love to chat about these things. So reach out to me. Excellent. Thanks so much. We'll put all that information into the notes for this episode mm-hmm. so that people have it as there as well. So they can just click it in case they can't spell Lindenberry for any reason. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and we appreciate it again. And thank you again for joining us today. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Wendy. <laughs> You've been through an extraordinary year. Welcome to the Atlas 2021 Undaunted Conference Experience. In a year marked with creative solutions and groundbreaking advancements in independent school technology, the Association of Technology Leaders in Independent Schools is prepared to deliver an immersive recalibration experience in the form of an annual conference. This is unlike any conference you've ever attended. In our truly unique approach, Atlas 2021 Undaunted will be a blended conference offering two options for registration. The first is a virtual conference scheduled for April 12th through 13th. This virtual experience will deliver the core content and keynote speakers, complete with virtual networking and a vendor demo day. For your investment in a single registration pass, your entire school team can attend. 
for those who can join us in person in Seattle on April 26th through 27th, we will host a workshopping retreat to build on the content delivered during the virtual annual conference for only $99 for members and just $199 for non-members. To learn more, visit theatlas.org. Josh and I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode of Amplifying Optimism in Education. Please join us next week for another new episode and conversation with an innovative educator from around the world.